You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 247. Rogers and Hammerstein. The golden age of Broadway. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. You know how we love our Broadway history on this show. So today we're going to just jump right into the golden age of the Broadway musical in the mid-20th century to discuss certainly the most famous and successful songwriting team in the history of Broadway, The Gentleman, Richard Rogers, and Oscar Hammerstein. These two men both had really successful theater careers even before they started collaborating with each other. So their partnership was really like their second act. But what a second act! (laughs) Because from 1943 to 1959, that is from Oklahoma to The Sound of Music, Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote and produced hit after hit on Broadway, nearly all of which are still produced today. These two men are among the most important cultural forces in America in the mid-20th century, and of course were incredibly influential here in New York City, which is why we're folding them in here as a story of New York City history. But who were these guys, and how did they even manage to keep cranking out these hits? I know. I mean, hits like South Pacific, The King and I, and on and on. Well, we'll try to answer that question today. So take your seats and silence your phones as we raise the curtain on Rodgers and Hammerstein and the golden age of the Broadway musical. And that was a bit of the overture from the original Broadway cast album of Oklahoma, released in 1943. At the end of this show, I'll have further information on some of the musical cues that will be used. Okay, so how are we even going to tackle the subject? Because as I 
said in the intro, they both had careers before they started working together. So, I mean, this is just going to be one show, right? <laughs> yes, we're going to actually start by dividing our two heroes between us. So okay. you, Tom, will oh. get Richard Rogers, okay, and I will handle Hammerstein. It is Hammer Time for Hammerstein, okay? <laughs> but we have to actually start... It's hammered. <laughs> it's Hammerstein. <laughs> But we have to start the story, actually, because he's Oscar Hammerstein the second. So I take it then that there's an Oscar Hammerstein the first. Right, and an incredibly influential figure in the world of entertainment in New York in the late 19th century. Young Oscar was 18 years old when he immigrated from the Kingdom of Prussia to the United States in 1864. Within 15 years he would find himself atop a very thriving industry. And this is where all of his money would come from for these entertainment endeavors that he would eventually pursue. Can you take a guess at what industry he worked in? Well, you're phrasing this question in a kind of curious manner, so it must be something a little offbeat here. Was it something like in alcohol or tobacco? Close, but no cigar. And when I say no cigar, I mean literally it was in cigar making. (laughs) <laughs> so close, but cigar. Yes. Uh, and, you know, in the Gilded Age, there were all sorts of men of wealth smoking cigars in various parlors and restaurants. So Hammerstein made a ton of money in this industry, then took that money, and when he got a little older, dabbled in pursuing his passion of opera and the theater, opening a series of theaters throughout New York in the 1880s and 90s. He was one of the very first theater impresarios to build north of 42nd Street. Right. He opened the Olympia Theater in 1895 at 1514 Broadway. Okay, that was, it was still Longacre Square. Mm. It was known for the horse and carriage trade. Now, interestingly, through these various theatrical endeavors, he would employ his own family, including his son, Willie Hammerstein, who would later become a theatrical operator in the mold of his dad, and even his brother, Arthur Hammerstein, who would then go off to build theaters himself. Wow. So it's the turn of the century, and the Hammersteins have become a theatrical dynasty. Right. They're a big deal right at the moment that the Broadway world finally gets up here to Times Square. Mr. Hammerstein, the first, though he still wants to pursue opera. That's still kind of his focus back then. Mm -hmm. In 1906, he builds an opera house at 34th Street and 8th Avenue. And it was from here in this opera house, which he called the Manhattan Opera House, he essentially waged a huge war with the Metropolitan Opera. Now, the Metropolitan Opera House was located nearby, right at 39th and Broadway. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of gutsy. And, but the problem here is that these two massive theaters that are attracting families and dozens of acts throughout the year, well, you couldn't really sustain all that opera in New York City, especially when there were other things that were appealing to people, including vaudeville and the new delights of Broadway. So throughout this process, Hammerstein eventually went broke In 1912, he makes a rather extraordinary deal with the Met. They pay him $1.2 million. That is $30 million today, Tom. If he would cease producing opera at the Manhattan, if he would stop producing opera for 10 years. Unfortunately, he never lived to see the end of that 10-year holdback. 
The Hammerstein family was hit with a horrible double tragedy in the 1910s. Oscar Hammerstein I died in August of 1919, five years after his son Willie died of Bright's disease at the young age of 38 in June of 1914. Willie left two sons, Reginald Hammerstein and his second son, Reginald's brother, named after his grandfather, Oscar Hammerstein II. So all of what I just said is basically preamble to explain what an extraordinary theatrical family young Oscar was born into, essentially. So he's bringing this legacy with him into what we're about to speak about. And I think it's interesting because he would write later about the fact that he very rarely saw his grandfather because Mm -hmm. his grandfather spent so much time in the theater. If he wanted to visit grandpa, he had to go to the theater and he was a kind of imposing difficult man. I mean, they lived their life on the stage, behind the stage, and surrounding the stage, essentially. Now, Oscar II was born in Harlem in 1895. By the time his father died, Oscar was already a student at Columbia University. He had promised Dad that he would not pursue a life in the theater, that he would instead be a lawyer. Oh, how respectable. (laughs) Well, we we see how that played out. In 1920, at age 25, debuted the first Broadway show ever written by Oscar Hammerstein. So his first show is in 1920. What was it called? It's called Always You, which debuted at the Central Theater at 47th Street and Broadway. That is where the W Hotel is today. Ah, yes. So that was where uh, his first show debuted. And how did he get this lucky break? Well, the producer of the show just happened to be his uncle, Arthur Hammerstein. Ah, so it was a family affair. Nepotism, you could say that too. But here's the thing. He had an extraordinary natural talent, eventually as a lyricist and a librettist. He worked with various composers throughout the 1920s, throughout the jazz age. Musicals with such alarming names as Tickle Me. Oh, Daffy Dill, Queen O'Hearts, Mary Jane McCain, and Rosemarie. Wait, those were musicals? What exactly constituted a <laughs> musical in the 1920s? Because I'm feeling like Tickle Me probably didn't have a really you know, advanced <laughs> plot line. No, these were more like musical reviews with superfluous, interchangeable plots, some likable stars, you know, plucked from Ziegfeld Follies or whatever. Some some good melodies, female-centric stories that often ended in marriage. Of course. <laughs> so during this period, this jazz age period, he frequently worked with a lyricist named Otto Harbach, who was 22 years his senior, was a mentor figure for him. There's a lot of mentoring going on throughout mm-hmm. the, the story here, which is pretty interesting to me. He instilled in Hammerstein the idea that music and story needed to be more fused together, and throughout their collaborations, they would get kind of closer and closer to what we consider the modern musical today. Now, in 1925, Oscar and Otto here, they began working with one of Broadway's most successful composers of the day, Jerome Kern. Now, the three of them, and of course a cast of dozens and others, produced a show called Sunny that debuted in September of 1925 at the New Amsterdam Theater. Sunny? What was Sunny about? As follows. And that's S-O-N-N-Y. S-U-N-N-Y. Oh. 
Quote, the heroine is a circus girl who is in love with one man, is loved by another, and eventually remarries a third after having previously married and divorced him. (laughs) (laughs) But this was a huge, huge hit. I mean, you had these three extraordinarily talented people putting this show together, and we're... It really took off with New York audiences. Now, throughout the decade, while working on other shows, Oscar would turn to Jerome Kern, and they began crafting an idea for something almost experimental, something that would be considered a little bit more substantial, something richer with a more serious plot. They wanted to work on something that had gravity. Hmm. So they turned to Edna Ferber's southern dramatic novel, Showboat, for inspiration. Their musical adaptation of that book, Showboat, would debut in New York at the Ziegfeld Theater on December 27th, 1927. So almost 90 years ago uh, from this moment. And to be clear, Showboat was unprecedented, right? It was totally different from all the shows that had preceded it. To Ziegfeld's chagrin, it had, quote, no legs and laughs. (laughs) On a certain level, it was a musical play. Mm -hmm. And Hammerstein was the librettist for the show, so he was responsible for turning that novel into a cohesive storyline on the stage. And it was a hit? It was a smash hit. It was so successful that it catapulted Oscar Hammerstein to the front row of great American stage talents in the 1930s. He continued to work in different capacities. He even directed some shows for both Broadway stage shows. And then sometimes he even wrote for Hollywood musicals. You know, you could now go to sound pictures at the theaters. And so musicals were a very big thing. And he jumped aboard. Well, many people in theater decided to jump aboard because in the 1930s, of course, the country was in the middle of the Great Depression. So people from Broadway moved out to to California to work in that medium, even if they didn't really like it that much. And for much more on the subject, check out our episode number 159 that we recorded four years ago. It's called The Broadway Musical Setting the Stage, really talking about the birth of the modern American Mm -hmm. musical. Now, Hammerstein would continue to work with Jerome Kern throughout the 1930s. However, his future would rest with another major composing star of the stage, a younger man, and a man like Oscar, who was born here in New York. I believe you're talking about Richard Rogers, mm-hmm. born on June 28th, 1902. Young Richard started playing the piano when he was just six years old and composing cute little tunes right away. He'd go off, for example, to a summer camp in Maine, to Camp Wigwam, and end up composing ditties for the camp shows. He just had it in him. So he really did camp it up. He literally camped it up from an early age. 
Uh, and he he would also head into Broadway theaters where he loved the music of Jerome Kern and and Oscar Hammerstein. He was aware of these men, obviously, even as a teenager. He, he spent a lot of time watching and admiring their work. I mean, little did he know. No. He attended a DeWitt Clinton High School and then, like Hammerstein, headed off to Columbia, where he composed music for the school's varsity show, much like Hammerstein. Yeah, he did the same thing. And another person who was doing the same thing was a lyricist named Lawrence Hart, or Larry. So I'm going to call Richard Rogers Dick. So, okay. Okay, Dick, Dick and, and Larry. Larry. Okay. Yes. So Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart uh, met in 1919. Larry was also studying at Columbia. He had really a great way with words, a very sardonic and biting sense of humor, and they hit it off well and started composing amateur shows. Many were fundraisers performed at the Plaza Hotel, for example. All the while, the two were trying to break into Broadway. And amazingly, in 1925, I've seen this in multiple sources. In 1925, Richard Rogers, I'm sorry, Dick, nearly walked away from the whole thing to start a more respectable career selling babies' underwear. Like make, well, no. making it? No, <laughs> selling it. He was at a low point in his life. He just needed a huggy or to be pampered. I don't know. He fortunately that same year, 1925, turned down that tantalizing offer because Dick and Larry finally had a hit, which was called the Garrick Gaieties. They produced with the Theater Guild in New York, which is a big deal. And it included one really big number that we still know today, a song called Manhattan. We'll have Manhattan, the Bronx is Staten Island too. It's lovely going through It's very fancy. An old Delancey Street, you know. The subway charms a soul when balmy breezes blow to and fro. The first of dozens of classics that he would be associated with. It, it, that the two would be associated with, right. Uh, because they would produce hit shows then on Broadway through the rest of the 1920s before, like Hammerstein, being lured out west to Hollywood when things hit the skids in New York in the early 30s. But that was kind of a fiasco. They didn't really know what to make of Hollywood and spent a lot of time kind of floating around to different studios before finally coming back to Broadway where they had a bunch of hits in the late 30s all the way up to the end of their collaboration, which was in 1943. These hits included Jumbo, which was at the Hippodrome, that giant theater over on 6th Avenue, mm-hmm. On Your Toes, which was choreographed by George Balanchine in 1936, Babes in Arms in 1937, which included a teenage cast, Pal Joey with Gene Kelly in 1940, and other shows. Um, and these shows gave us some of the greatest songs in the American Songbook, including too many to mention, but I will just drop a couple, like Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered, My Funny Valentine, The Lady is a Tramp, and so many other songs. These were composed by Richard Rogers with lyrics by Larry or Lawrence Hart. So by like 1943, mm-hmm. he's doing so well that, say, had he decided at that point to drop everything and go sell undergarments, he'd already left his mark on the stage. Absolutely. Unfortunately for their for their partnership, Dick and Larry were very different characters. 
And perhaps that's what made their collaboration work in the first place, because you know Dick was very buttoned up and rather conservative, while Larry was always the life of the party. He had big festive dinner parties. He had a drinking problem, and he was gay. He had a way of hitting the town, you know, with his posse, and a way of disappearing, hanging out, especially as they became more successful, hanging out with crowds who took advantage of him and his money, throwing, you know, lavish parties at his duplex on Central Park West, where he lived with his widowed mother. Over time, unfortunately, his behavior grew more difficult. A bender for him would end up being, you know, a disappearance of three days, and he'd often miss meetings or show up drunk and incapable of working at all. So Dick would nearly have to force Larry to write lyrics at at the end. So it was no surprise then in 1943 that things came to an end for them. So how did Rogers meet Hammerstein, like let's bring the two threads of the story oh, together. Right, because finally, because the show is about the two of them, <laughs> right? Not separately, together. Well, as you've already mentioned, they were both at that point known forces in the theater. They by were both 1943. Yeah. They were both accomplished, well known, and successful. And in 1943, they both coincidentally were interested in producing a musical based off of a play from 1931 called Green Grow the Lilacs by Lynn Riggs, a heartwarming story of life on the prairie out west. Well, Rogers had approached Hart about collaborating with him on the show, and Larry said no way. He was going off to Mexico to kind of blow off some steam and let loose. And meanwhile, Hammerstein had the same idea, and he approached his old collaborator, Jerome Kern, who turned him down as well. And Rogers and Hammerstein knew each other at the time. Word got out that they were both looking into it, and they decided to take a chance on it together. So like the plot of a Broadway musical that they would perhaps later themselves compose, the two of these people get together to just try something out, to try something new. And put on a show. Well, it was produced for the Theater Guild, who had a very hard time finding cash for it. Producers and financial backers were not interested because the show really broke in a big way with theatrical convention. Where were the chorus girls? Where was the big opening number? Where where were the comedy routines like you mentioned? In fact, it opens with a woman churning butter. Yes. Audiences were used to seeing dancing girls and flashing legs. Not an elderly aunt with a butter churn. And then from there, it wasn't like they brought out big name stars. You know, in fact, there were really no bold-faced names in that original cast. Uh, Not to say that they weren't great. They had Alfred Drake playing Curly and Celeste Holm as Ado Annie. And this was Celeste Holm before she would be signed uh, by 20th Century Fox and move out to Hollywood. So this musical, based on this play, Green Grow the Lilacs, then begins previews. Right, in New Haven, Mm -hmm. out of town, where the audience was very appreciative, uh, but on the train ride back to New York, the word got around among those in the theater business that there was just one problem with the show. They said it, no gals, no gags, no chance. A few days ago, while researching the topic at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, I was going through the folder on this show, and I came across an... uh, 
a Times report. They would file reports from the shows opening out of town, mm-hmm. right? Send it b- dispatches back to the editors to keep them abreast of what was happening here. Mm-hmm. They filed a report on March 15th, 1943 that read, the Theater Guild has made no mistake in turning Lynn Riggs' Green Grow the Lilacs into a musical show, which opened last night at the Colonial Theater under the title, Away We Go, probably will be retitled Oklahoma before it reaches Broadway. Richard Rogers, working for the first time with Oscar Hammerstein II, rather than Larry Hart, has turned in some fine, lusty tunes, some love duets and comedy numbers that are excellent, while the Hammerstein lyrics are pleasant and singable. The sets are admirable, the costumes delightful, and the dances by Agnes DeMille, superlative. The players, though only two of them, Alfred Drake and Joan Roberts, can really sing, are generally well cast and play with zest. Blue penciling will be necessary as the show runs three hours. Audience reactions splendid. Capacity houses laughed and applauded throughout. So by the time it gets to New York, the show is now named Oklahoma. Exclamation point. (laughs) So Oklahoma comes to New York. Yes, and it opens on Wednesday, March 31st, 1943 at the St. James Theater and was box office gold and a critical hit. Sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat Can sure smell sweet When the wind comes right behind the rain Oklahoma every night Everyone was amazed, it seems, among other things, at how the songs advanced the plot. Life magazine would write in their review, Broadway's most enchanting music show, Oklahoma, is something pretty special by any standards, but by those of Broadway musicals, it is downright radical. For one thing, its cast includes no celebrated names. For another, it is wholesome and sweet in the unaffected way that a fairy tale is. For a third, its male dancers, unlike the usual chorus type, do not look as if they had just smelled something unpleasant. (laughs) In addition, it utilizes a ballet to further its plot. Not the least of Oklahoma's charms is the Richard Rogers Oscar Hammerstein II score, which, although it evolves out of the storyline, manages to remain singable and haunting. And it was interesting to flip through this folder at the library and see all these press clippings and really see evidence of this show becoming a phenomenon because it broke box office records. And that sweetness is actually important, that escapism, because this show is opening in the midst of World War II. And this provided some sort of comfort for audiences and is partially responsible for its wild success. Right. And as the reviewer was noting, it was a show that didn't have the biting satire of earlier Broadway shows. Or like if you think about the songs of Cole Porter or of Larry Hart, it was sweet in a way that was kind of new. It was sincere, if not witty. And I think that those are qualities that we associate still today with Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. And also in 1943, it did something else unconventional once they realized that this thing was going to be a hit. Decca Records brought the cast into a studio and recorded basically the entire show or all of the songs and released what would become the first 
Broadway cast album. And they, of course, recorded that here in New York. But those albums were a huge hit across the country and really worked as a, a magnificent new publicity tool to get people excited about seeing the show. All of this was new. Thus bringing greater success for when these shows would eventually go on tour to other cities. And Oklahoma would go on tour, you know, 1945. I saw reviews in Philly and Dallas, Los Angeles and Seattle. And of course, it even toured through Oklahoma City itself. In November of 1946, it had a week's engagement at the Municipal Auditorium. And the city was so excited um, and the publicity machine back at the Theater Guild so good that they managed to throw a party, a lavish mile-long parade for the arrival of the <laughs> cast of Oklahoma. How and, very Barnum-esque. <laughs> totally. They even declared a school holiday for the arrival of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. And it set all the records. On July 1st, 1946, Oklahoma overtook Hell's a Poppin' as the longest-running musical in U.S. history when it celebrated its 1,405th performance, which was featured on the front page of the New York Times with Curly, with a guitar, walking by the grave of Hell's a Poppin'. And it had real lasting power to celebrate its fifth anniversary of performances, something that had never happened before. A show opened for five years on March 31st, 1948, they had a special performance in front of a star-studded audience that included Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, Fred Allen, Clark Gable, and Danny Kaye, among others, which was followed by a gala reception at the Plaza Hotel Ballroom, which, and I found a little poster for this, in a cute way, they had renamed the Grand Ballroom at the Plaza the Hayloft. <laughs> oh, darling. Oh, what a beautiful party. The show would run for record-breaking 2,212 performances, by which point Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein were already packing them in to other shows on Broadway. We'll get to those shows after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
We've seen all the video call fails by now, the mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, the years 1943 to 1959 are often called the golden age of Broadway. In fact, we've called it that many times. Mm-hmm. You have great talent in this newly invigorated form of the Broadway musical, which caught on like gangbusters in post-war America, shows that would have reputations enhanced with the advent of cast albums, as you mentioned, with television broadcasts, and with film adaptations. In this period alone, you had 1944, you had On the Town with Leonard Bernstein and Comden and Green. Mm-hmm. 19- Bronx is up and batteries down. 1947, Brigadoon with Lerner and Lowe. 1948, Kiss Me Kate, which was Cole Porter. 1950, you had Guys and Dolls, Frank Lesser. Then there was Damn Yankees, My Fair Lady, on and on, all of these magnificent shows, but none of them were as big as Rodgers and Hammerstein. They became a veritable machine of popular, mostly reliable stage product, and among the greatest creators in New York City in the mid-20th century. It's interesting because you just mentioned this list of musicals, none of which are Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Mm -hmm. But if you ask most people who know Broadway theater, what are the great shows of the golden age of Broadway, there would be a long list of Rodgers and Hammerstein productions. Kicking off with Oklahoma and going all the way up to The Sound of Music. Well, I will be going through that very list of shows right now. But what I want you to keep in mind Uh as I do this, the other creative forces that are happening in the United States at the very same time, like contemporary... To these musicals, you have the rise of recorded music itself, the birth of rhythm and blues and rock and roll. You have here in New York, especially, you have the abstract expressionist artist movement, which would define the art scene. You have the birth of television. You have the publication of Catcher in the Rye and Breakfast at Tiffany's and works by James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. You know, all of this is adding together to create this immense American cultural force, which would become dominant, of course, all over the world. And of course, central to the work of Rodgers and Hammerstein, these two men, would be the countless hundreds of people, thousands of people who would be working on stage and off stage to create this handful of musical masterpieces. All of which, mm-hmm. all of which, Tom. <laughs> Greg is so excited right now. He's almost leaping from his and chair. This is the most incredible part to me. 
All of which yeah. would make their New York debut on two blocks, 44th and 45th Street between 7th Avenue and 8th Avenue. Right, 44th and 45th and Schubert Alley. Too. Sure. Mm-hmm. But that cluster of theaters, and at some points in the 1950s, they would dominate those theaters. They would be in a good handful at one point. Okay, well, I kicked us off with Oklahoma in 1943. Where did they turn from there? Well, they didn't have to turn far. They actually went across the street. So, the, <laughs> so that was at the St. James. Our next destination is the Majestic Theater on 44th Street. Today, the Majestic is the home of the Phantom of the Opera. But on April 19th, 1945, now that's just months before Germany's surrender in World War II, just to keep that in mind, on that April evening came the premiere of Carousel, based on the 1909 play Lilium. Carousel seems like it's just a sort of a light trifle. It actually has a rather dark storyline with an antihero. There's crime, domestic abuse, death. It's a rather dark show. Right. These things are not typical musical comedy fare. Right. Um, and, and the show was groundbreaking because it dealt with these very serious themes uh, that had been really not touched right. by the Broadway musical. As the Brooklyn Daily Eagle described it at the premiere, quote, all the ordinary hokum artificiality and schmaltz so long characteristic of musical comedy is sifted out and what remains is a pure clear simple beauty and sentiment And the show also includes such classic songs uh, as June is Bustin' Out All Over, What's the Use of Wondrin, and my favorite, You'll Never Walk Alone, which I have been known to hammer out on the piano during difficult moments. And But songs, by the way, that were used even more successfully in the deployment of the plot. At this point, songs were no longer extraneous decorative elements of a show, but were critical to the storylines. And they were advancing the plot. You know, by the way, Tom, do you know who was there on the opening night of Carousel? Who? Hammerstein's young protege, Steve Sondheim. Oh, <laughs> we know Stevie. Steve Steven, yeah. Steven Sondheim, who, of course, would define the next generation of the great American musical. Now, by this time, 1945... Rodgers and Hammerstein, the duo, because of the success of Oklahoma, had been lured out to Hollywood to make their first film musical together. That would be State Fair, released in the summer of 1945. So it's incredible to think that in the universe during the summer of 1945, you had both Carousel and State Fair entertaining thousands of people. It's also interesting that their first film musical was not Oklahoma. In fact, Oklahoma, the film, would not be filmed and released until 1955. So 12 years after the stage version, 
Shirley Jones would take the the title role uh, (laughs) out in California. Now, next up on the list, opening on May 16th, 1946 at the Imperial Theater. And that's on 45th. Right. Annie, get your gun. Annie, get your gun. That's not Rodgers and Hammerstein. They did not write it. But by this point, they had begun producing shows as well as writing them. And this one was, of course, a cash bonanza for them, for Annie Get Your Gun was a huge success. Although the story of its creation is a little tragic. Hammerstein had actually hired his old collaborator, Jerome Kern, to work on this, and it would have a book by Dorothy and Herbert Fields. However, on November 5th, 1945... At 60 years of age, Kern suffered a cerebral hemorrhage while on the corner of Park Avenue and 57th Street. Jerome Kern would die six days later. So to save the production, they brought in... Who'd they call up? Irving Berlin. As one does. Perhaps the world's most famous songwriter, who had, of course, just penned the song White Christmas three years before that. So, as I mentioned... Well, there is no business like show business. (laughs) I mean, you just have to go with it. Obviously, Annie was a huge hit and a huge moneymaker for Rodgers and Hammerstein. Which demands that we just talk about this for a second, that they're producing as well as creating shows. Really, after their success with Oklahoma, they they formed two companies. They formed a company called Williamson Music uh, to be the official music publishing arm of mm-hmm. their enterprise, so named because they were both sons of Williams. Their fathers oh. were both named mm-hmm. Williams, so they were it's Williamson Music. And then also Surrey Productions. Surrey Productions would be the producing arm that would produce Annie Get Your Gun. Mm-hmm. So named after Surrey with a fringe on top from a, a reference to Oklahoma. From Oklahoma. Cool. So they would lead those companies throughout the rest of their career and their collaboration. In fact, Richard Rogers would sometimes say that he was as interested in running the business as he was in composing. And they would amass a fortune because of the way they very smartly structured their business here. Now, the following year, 1947, in the fall, came what might be considered their first disappointment. It was a show called Allegro, which premiered at the Majestic after Carousel moved out. Now, although it's considered a failure, it played for over a year because of advanced ticket sales. By this time, the, the names Rodgers and Hammerstein were gold. So mm. so they were able to play for a, over a year, although that's a lesser work. That's a Frank Lesser work? No, it's a lesser Rodgers and Hammerstein work. Frank Lesser wasn't involved. Up next, same theater. Majestic. Yes. The New York premiere on April 7th, 1949, of the musical based on the James Mishner book, Tales of the South Pacific. Of course, we know it today is just South Pacific. Not only would it be one of the most popular shows on Broadway into the 1950s, but it would win the Pulitzer Prize and countless Tony Awards, because now the Tony Awards exist. And so they heaped stacks of trophies onto the front row for this for this popular show starring Mary Martin and in his first Broadway show the Italian 
opera star Ezio Penza. You know, having him in the show is a little bit of a nod to grandfather's old operatic roots and his passions, to Oscar I's love for opera. So enchanted evening, you may see a stranger, you may see a stranger across a crowded room, and so now you know, you know even then, that somewhere you see her again. Now, the weekend after its opening, the New York Times ran an extensive article on Rodgers and Hammerstein, on the mystique of these two. Quote, Basically, there is no mystery in the team's almost universal appeal. Everything they have done together has had a direct sincerity, a human simplicity. Although Hammerstein's lyrics may, as some believe, lack the inventiveness of the late Larry Hart or the sophistication of Cole Porter, they touch the heart. Roger's music, velvety and warm, not only captures the spirit of the Hammerstein lyric, but their poetry as well. And the stories they tell in their musical plays are those of real people. So this mm. sort of like encapsulates what was the true appeal of a Rodgers and Hammerstein production. Right, the folksiness, the everyman quality, mm-hmm. the Americana of, yes. these, of these productions. Even though they were largely set in other countries. True. And so this takes us up to the end of the 40s, 1950. Yeah, in fact, let's go to 1951, to March 29th, 1951, and go back down to the St. James Theater. A block south on 44th. Which, by the way, is the home for Frozen, the musical, just to like, Keep that in mind. This was the stage that saw the New York debut of The King and I, starring Gertrude Lawrence and Yul Brenner, based on a book by Margaret Landon. By this time, 1951, most of the reviews that I read of The King and I, interestingly, now, I mean, I, we consider this to be like literally a top shelf classic musical, right? Absolutely. But most of the re- reviews of the time lamented that it was. Not great, Rodgers and Hammerstein, but it was still pretty good. <laughs> like people by this really? point, so, yeah, there's so, lots of expectations at this point, you know. So they were raising the bar, r- raising expectations, like you said, not just in terms of the artistic merits, but also in terms of the commercial success of a show. They were expected to outdo themselves. They were so successful that something that might have been considered a mild success from another composer was seen as a true failure. From Rodgers and Hammerstein. And that's kind of what happened here in the mid-1950s. They had two quote-unquote flops. Me and Juliet, which opened at the Majestic in 1953, and Pipe Dream. I'd never even heard of a show called Pipe Dream. Like This, one, this one's a truly forgotten Rodgers and Hammerstein gem, which debuted at the Schubert Theater in 1955. Perhaps it's because of this that they decided to m- make a foray into television with the show Cinderella, which was written specifically for TV and broadcast live. This is really amazing. The the thought of broadcasting live in the mid-1950s. It was on March 31st, 1957, and it starred young up-and-coming actress Julie Andrews. 
Wow, live Julie Andrews in 1957. <laughs> and did people tune in? A few people tuned in. 107 million people saw <laughs> a, some part of the show. Tom, do you know what that is? That is two-thirds of the population of the United States in 1957. <laughs> Consider that that number is greater than all of the people who had ever seen a live Rodgers and Hammerstein production. More people were tuning in to see the, the show on TV than had ever sat in a theater and watched right. the show. So in addition to getting paid really handsomely for producing Cinderella, it was also working as a great publicity tool for mm -hmm. their other shows. Yeah. Luckily, the following year, they would mount a new show and one where they could, they got their mojo back a little bit, I would say. Uh, it was at the St. James Theater in 1958. The show was called Flower Drum Song. This musical was set in San Francisco's Chinatown. Now, it's interesting because if you take a survey of all of these different shows, you know, it's, they, they, they're not afraid to take on different cultures, you know, diverse cultures, and were seen as quite edgy and daring for the day. I mean, it's funny because they weren't playing it safe. We might consider a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical today as being something that, like, is might be conventional because it really right. set the standard. But for the time, they were seen as often very groundbreaking. Although it is true that sometimes looking back in the 21st century at this show... Uh, this groundbreaking show in 1958, Flower Drum Song, and, and the way it discussed these issues can look a little bit dated. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't close out the 1950s without discussing the show that really, I think for many people, is synonymous with the names Rodgers and Hammerstein. That is, of course, The Sound of Music. And in fact, I'm willing to wager that a significant percentage of Bowery Boys listeners have even appeared in a production <laughs> of The Sound of Music at some point. I have. <laughs> As have I. I was Friedrich. Who were you? I think I was a Nazi. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't that talented. And there aren't that many roles for, for guys in that show outside of the, the lead characters and Nazis. Right. And you couldn't just don a habit and... <laughs> no, no. Well, um, the show, in case you're not familiar with The Sound of Music, is the story of Maria, a nun living in Austria in, in 1938 during the rise of the Nazi party, uh, who takes a job as a governess for Captain von Trapp, who has a whole crop of mischievous children and needs help keeping them in line. Of course, Maria ends up befriending them, the children, and teaching them how to sing in perfect harmony. And she and the captain fall in love against all odds and end up fleeing Vienna and the Nazis and heading off to climb every mountain in search of a new future together. The story is actually based on historical figures. The Von Trapps were real people. But it came to the attention of Rodgers and Hammerstein because there were some films in the 1950s, movies made in West Germany about the Von Trapp family. And Broadway producers thought that it could be a great star vehicle for Mary Martin. Who had just starred in South Pacific. The producer's original idea was to do it as a play, actually, and use real folk music, actual Austrian folk music that the Von Trapp family singers would have performed as the music and, and bring in Rodgers and Hammerstein to compose one or two extra songs mm -hmm. around it. Now, that didn't go over well. 
with Rodgers and Hammerstein. They were not interested in just being, you know, like co-creators of a show because of Rodgers and Hammerstein. By this point, they're, you know, the top of their career. So established. So established. Their names alone sold a show, like you were mentioning before with the advanced sales. They didn't just do one or two songs for somebody else's show. If it was either going to be a Rodgers and Hammerstein show or it wasn't going to be a Rodgers and Hammerstein show. So the producers agreed and Richard and Oscar composed a show that is still a classic today and includes such hits as Do Re Mi, 16 Going on 17, Climb Every Mountain, The Sound of Music, and, and many others. Every morning you greet me Small and white, clean and bright You look happy to meet me The stage version opened on November 16th, 1959, not at the Imperial or the Majestic or the St. James. Oh, really? But far away up on 46th Street at the (laughs) Lunfontaine Theater. A block away. (laughs) It would run for 1,443 performances through 1963 with Mary Martin. It won a handful of Tonys, including Best Musical and Best Actress. The London version opened two years later in 1961 and even bested the New York record. It ran for 2,385 performances. This was a global sensation. And I know you, Tom, you must have a couple reviews, original reviews handy that you could... Maybe I have a couple. (laughs) That you could read. The reviews were mostly positive, kind of mixed, actually. Hmm. Uh, In the New York Times, Brooks Atkinson... Gave it a generally positive review, saying, although Miss Martin, now playing an Austrian maiden, has longer hair than she had in South Pacific, she still has the same common touch that wins friends and influences people, the same sharp features, goodwill and glowing personality, and the same plain voice that makes music sound intimate and familiar. But then he complains about, like, the commonplace scenery and the fact that it seems actually, like, dated on stage. Though he he liked Rodgers and Hammerstein's score. So that's in the Times. So November of 1959, and this is their final show together. Yes, because Oscar Hammerstein had been sick. He had been in and out of the hospital for years. He had survived cancer, uh, but he had become much sicker while creating The Sound of Music. But he did see the opening of the show, and the following summer, 1960, over lunch with Richard Rogers, he told him that his cancer had grown and that he had actually decided no longer to fight it, and that he would head back to his farm where he lived in western Pennsylvania in Bucks County to spend his final days. And there, on August 23rd, 1960, he died of stomach cancer. The last lyric that he ever wrote was a last-minute addition to The Sound of Music, the song Edelweiss. Richard Rogers would soldier on without his partner. Uh, he worked on several television scores. He um, headed in every day into his office to take care of the business. One bright spot for him, five years after the passing of Oscar, in 1965 was the film version of The Sound of Music, which starred Julie Andrews. Cinderella. A favorite of Rodgers and Hammerstein. 
Uh, it won the, the Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Director and was an international phenomenon. In 1979, Richard Rogers died at 77 years old. And 11 years later, in 1990, the 46th Street Theater was renamed the Richard Rogers Theater. Today, home to another smash hit, Hamilton. But you can also find the name Hammerstein on a theater, not in the Times Square area. But if you go over to where that old opera house was on 34th and 8th Avenue, the Oscar Hammerstein Manhattan Opera House. Well, today that building is the Manhattan Center and the main performing venue is called Hammerstein Ballroom. But Rogers and Hammerstein's legacy can still be found throughout the world and really throughout the country here, including in high school auditoriums, coast to coast, where still today, hundreds of teenage nuns still contemplate, how do you solve a problem like Maria? We'll have none of those nuns on the blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, but many, many images of some of the original Broadway casts and posters from the period and that sort of thing. So that's at BarryBoysHistory.com. We'd like to send a huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BoysHistory. Because of your support, Greg and I have been able to turn around show after show, uh, week after week. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Check out patreon.com slash Bowery Boys to join us and literally to join us because we also plan meetups and things like that. Lots of fun things for our patrons. And finally... Check out the Barry Boy spinoff podcast called The First. You can look it up by The First Stories at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There are two new episodes for the month of December. One seasonal on the history of Christmas lights and another one that's coming out next week on the first American Highway. The first Mm. cross-country road to cross from one coast to the other. So those stories are waiting for you at The First. Stories of inventions and their consequences. And finally, finally, if you have a chance, it is something we don't ask for often, but we'd be flattered if you had a moment to write a review of the Bowery Boys uh, in the iTunes podcast directory. It's because of those reviews more people find the show. So we would be honored if you had an extra minute to head over to the podcast directory and write a review for the Bowery Boys. So on that note, that Rodgers and Hammerstein note... I think it's a high C. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. The music clips featured on this show include two excerpts from the 1943 original Broadway cast recording of Oklahoma... Available by Universal Classics Group, Can't Help Lovin' That Man from Showboat, performed by Helen Morgan. Both she and that song appeared in the original stage production of Showboat. Next was the song Manhattan, performed by Alan Gould and Ruth Tester, which appeared in the 1929 film Makers of Melody. Following that was a performance by Jan Roberts from Carousel, the song If I Loved You, from the original Broadway cast album that is available on Geffen Records. 
Then we heard from Ezio Penza singing Some Enchanted Evening from the original Broadway cast album of South Pacific, available on Sony Masterworks. And finally, a little taste of the Broadway cast album of The Sound of Music. That song was, of course, Edelweiss, the final song written by the team of Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. That album is also available on Sony Masterworks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.